Thank you, Silas. Hey, Bethany Northeast, good to see you. Some of you we know well, some we uh, are just getting to know. Um, super big joy um, after, gosh, we've been at Bethany 20 years to be at Northeast on a Sunday morning. Often we're working at other locations, so this is a super um, privilege to be here. And uh, we have a word today to share out of Mark, um, but this is uh, significant. The only time we worshiped with Northeast was a Good Friday service we did together with you all between North and Northeast in the high school years ago. Super special. So, I mean, we've been so excited to be here. Did I turn this back on? Maybe I didn't. Is it on now? Yeah! Woohoo! Um, just, we love your congregation so much. I was giddy to be able to come to be with you. I mean, we clearly sort of, you know, the pastors and worship team so well, um, but families in this community that are new friends, old friends, it just feels like a privilege to come and be and worship with you. And I'm continually proud of what our church represents in these many locations. So to have this crossover experience to be together is just really special. So yeah. Thanks and, for welcoming us. Oh, thank you. Sorry to speak over you. Mm-hmm. In, in November, my job changed a bit from being at North to being the senior pastor, and it was always a hope that the senior pastor would actually be in our six locations. So over the year ahead, we'll be in each of the six locations once or twice a year, just saying, hey, we are one church of these different locations. They're all super different, but united by a greater goal. Uh, today, we have a message called Once More, uh, based off um, Mark 8, title again, Once More. Let me pray, and we'll dive in. So, Lord, thank you for Bethany Northeast and uh, just the people that live in this neighborhood that um, come and worship and serve. And, Lord, we're just grateful for Pastor Jack and Silas and John and Amy and Andrew and the team here. And um, we just pray, Lord, that you would speak to us today uh, through this passage of Mark, that you would um, not just speak to our heads, but you would open up our hearts that we would have a personal encounter with your scriptures today as we think about our own lives. And and who do we say that you are, God? Uh, We're grateful for this time now. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, here's our scripture today from Mark 8, 22 through 34. It says, They, Jesus and the disciples, came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, and they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into a village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the day he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, "Mm, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is the word of the Lord. 
So this is a really interesting passage that we're teaching on today. A man gets healed, the lordship is declared, and then the very one to declare it is then called Satan. And Jesus makes a distinction between human concerns and godly concerns. All of this happens in a setting that Mark, the writer, wants us to pay attention to. They're a long way from the center of the faith. They're a long way from Jerusalem. They're in the north country. They're on this road trip. And then Jesus asks this question, who do you say I am? This piece, who do you say I am, is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them told after the feeding of the thousands. And there's a thing that we're going to be talking about today, that Jesus doesn't ask the thousands to say who I am, he asks the few. And Heather's going to unpack that for us a little bit later, that Jesus definitely wants to save the world, but he wants to impact the few. And he asks for this declaration in this smaller context, like, how do you see me? How's your vision? Who do you say I am? Am I really the Lord of your life? And this is the center point of the book of Mark. 16 chapters, we're at eight. And I know at Bethany Northeast, you have incredible teachers with Jack and Silas and John. And they've been teaching you that this declaration, who do you say I am in Mark 8, is the center point of the gospel. The first eight chapters, who is this Jesus? The next eight chapters, this is how this Jesus will be Lord by giving his life. From this point forward, Eugene Peterson says, and I think Jack quoted it in a previous sermon, it's all death talk uh, from this point forward. So this is a really big thing. Who do you say I am? In Jewish, uh, in the Jewish language, it's this Mishiach, meaning it's the Messiah. The, the Greek translation, the Christ. What's our translation? President. Uh, ultimate visionary, like king of my heart. Like we have lots of different ways we could answer that. But the big point that we want to get to today that comes from this market is how do you see God? What's your view of Christianity? How is he impacting your life, your home, your friendships, your work? Because there's this word of, of encouragement. This Jesus is a is a God of once more who will never stop touching you in your place of need when you need him to continue to reveal himself to you. But there's also this word of conviction because like we got to the end of the passage where it was so easy for Peter to say you're the Messiah, but so hard to actually follow the Messiah and the Messiah's ways because we have the ways of humanity all around us. And so today we're going to be talking about this kind of lordship and this idea of once more in healing. And the hope would be that we would be kind of leaning into the deeper impact of Christ in our own hearts and our own lives. Mm -hmm. And this first point, we're talking about eyes to see, because clearly this is a, uh, what the first part of this book is about. Um, in the verses 8, 22 through 26, again in the text, it says, They, Jesus and disciples, came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up, and again he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. So once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened, his sight restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home and said, don't even go into the village. So here's something interesting happening right here. This, this like healing method is actually kind of gross, you know, when you think about it. He, he spits, he puts dirt in his eyes, and what is this about? But what we notice here is something interesting about the two touches. 
that he does this twice. And, and so, you know, we were curious about that, kind of what that means, this bigger picture of why two touches? He's God. He can do it in an instant. He can do it without the mud and the spit. You know, God's ways are fabulous and wonderful, but confusing here a little bit. And, and you know, we wonder about the idea here of deeper transformation. Like Scott said a minute ago, sometimes maybe we feel partially healed and we can have this hope for full healing. And also, look at it from a context of, um, you know, I, I work as a marriage and family therapist, but I've also had an opportunity to teach on many occasions at SPU and, and in particular teach developmental psychology. And we talk about this idea of the zone of proximal development. And actually, Stephanie Platter, your worship leader, was talking about this in her journalism experience with students, where you're not trying to step in and do anything for somebody. You're actually stepping in partially to empower them to be in this zone of proximal development. It's like the kiddo that's learning to walk, and you're not holding them. You're actually stepping back, giving a little bit of balance and pulling back and letting them build that strength. And I wonder somehow if this is a little bit of what Jesus is doing here in a first pass-by, a first pass-by that says, are you there yet? We can have hope in this. There's so much symbolism in this because sometimes we regain our sight and we say, yeah, but it's still a little fuzzy. I still don't quite know what I'm looking at. And we can trust that God has more healing to come. And there's power in that. And, and actually, the learning that he, it happens here is so interesting because when we go through something multiple times, you know, people who come to therapy, it's like, I'm not fixed yet. You know, I did that one thing and my life isn't fully transformed yet. Well, God does transformation work, right? But sometimes we need to work at it and we need a couple pass-bys in order for that transformation to really take hold. So I think there's just so much hope in these passages for us. Um, that we can take into our discipleship journey. The fact that the man is healed in stages will be very significant in the next, in the story of the disciples in this next story. Um, they see Jesus, Jesus acting as the Messiah, and they won't fully understand how Jesus reigns until the cross. Right now, they see with blurry eyes. Then they will see Jesus as he was created to be. And so in this Lenten season, this might be a word of encouragement to us as well. For most of us, we're in a multi-process stage of revelation as Christ is revealing himself to us. As our blindness is changed to seeing, sometimes we are in the journey. Sometimes things are fuzzy still and unclear, but we can have hope that those fuzzy trees will turn to people, that we can trust that full healing is possible. And are we really hearing what God is telling us? We can listen for this so we will see more clearly. It reminds me of that uh, verse that Paul talks about, like, now we see through a glass darkly. It's the same thing, that, like, healing comes in stages. That's interesting because both Luke and Matthew don't tell this pericope, this little mini miracle, but Mark includes it. And it's almost like it sets up this next piece of, like, who do you say I am? It's very, it gives me at least a ton of hope because when I, even as a professional Christian, blow it in my marriage, blow it with my kids, God... I'm saved, why am I still needing to move from blindness to sight? It's because this is the human story, that on this side of eternity, we're going to need that once more moment. We're going to need that touch of the Lord to touch us again. I see things, I want to be continually made into God's image, and I love that Jesus keeps coming for the man until he can see clearly. That's really, really hopeful. Jesus will never leave anyone who comes to him for transformation 
with a half healing. He doesn't. This man gets two touches. In some regards, he gets like a double dose. And this, again, is not about Jesus' insufficiency. It's something within the man that needed a couple of touches. God is not exacerbated by you. He's not discouraged by you. He doesn't want to give up on you because you need another. T- no, that's not the story. That's often our humanity or our shame trigger that wants to do that. Not this Jesus. This Jesus says, I'm going to stay with you until you can see me clearly. And I don't know about you. I, I find that incredibly helpful. That if we come to the Lord, Lord, help me see. I, I, help me get healed. Jesus says, I want to do that for you. And this is where the Lordship of Christ will really challenge us because there is something within this whole narrative that we're going to be unpacking that like we kind of, we trim back to blindness. We trim back what Jesus says to our humanity and not his godliness. And so that means, especially here in our season of Lent, that we have to be in a seasons and, and asking God to continually make us, make us see that happens as we name him as Lord. C.S. Lewis said famously after looking in Jesus that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. And he wrote in Mere Christianity, you must make your choice. Either this man, Jesus, was the son of God, or he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about us being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so may we all, we're all together in that, may we actually see Jesus and have a life that follows. Jesus doesn't intend to just leave us with that superficial, religious, oh, I know the right words. He actually wants to move us, eyes to see and lives to follow. Uh, Last weekend at North, we had baptisms. And because it had been several years because of COVID, there was a whole big group of um, folks baptized, including our son. It was very special. Um, and what are the words that we say at the baptism tank? You know, do you declare Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I do. Is your intention to follow him all the days of our life? We will. We do. And then we celebrate in baptism. And what a gift baptism is because it's a surrender to the power of the Lord. And it was just such a reminder, even thinking back on my own baptism, Heather and I were getting ready to be married at Spokane River. I'm 22 years old. Boom, the dunk in the river. In we, February. In February. In the Spokane River. <laughs> and as we went back into the car to just warm up and connect a moment, I just couldn't stop crying mm-hmm. because I was aware both of the divine gift of grace and how much I wanted more of Jesus in my life. So this eyes to see should make us, again, not, not triggered to our shame, but hungry for more transformation. So eyes to see, and then we're going to move into the second part, which we're calling ears to hear, but this is verses 27 through 30, where Jesus and his disciples just healed that man. Now they're going on to villages around Caesarea Philippi. They're even further north. On the way, Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? They said, some say John, some say Elijah, still others say the prophets. But then Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone. The setting here matters an incredible amount. They're in Caesarea Philippi, which is, again, northern reaches of Jesus' ministry, but it was nicknamed the places where gods were born and made. It was a place of Baal worship and Pan worship, and it was this, you know, Roman guards and centurion. So it's likely that as Jesus was walking on the way with his friends, he was able to point out, like, over there is the shrine to Baal. Over there is the, you know, the grotto of Pan. And he's saying, but... 
in this place of false gods, who do you say I am? Mm-hmm. Location matters a lot. Because I, my hunch is if Jesus were to show up today at Bethany Northeast, he'd walk you, not through some neighborhood you don't look, at, look and live in. He'd walk you through your neighborhood and say, there are false gods around us constantly, but in the midst mm-hmm. of your setting, who do you say I am? And Mark has said it, Mark 1.1. Mark, again, written as the scribe to Peter, so we get a lot of Peter's narrative. Mark 1.1 says, this is the story of Jesus the Messiah. The centurion in Mark 16 says, surely he was the Christ, he was the Messiah. But what's important for Jesus is, what's your story? What, what do you, what, who do you declare me to be? And the Greek translation is, it's like a double intention on this word you. How about you? Who do you say I am? Because our response matters everything here. Mm-hmm. Isn't it interesting, though, that as he says this, as he does these miracles uh, in, in verse 26 and then again in 30. In 26, he says, don't even go into the village after the healing happens. And then in 30, he says, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And this confuses me. I am an outreach person. I am, uh, how do we make the most impact? How do we fill the room with people to get the good message here? And so when Jesus does these amazing miracles and then he says, don't tell anybody, there's something to that, right? It's like, what's that about? And he does it twice, which is interesting, like the twice healing. There's something parallel to this. Twice he says, now don't go say anything. Um, And this just really struck me. And we talked about this. We talked about this in the teaching team meeting and together here again throughout the week. Once again, he says, don't tell anyone in this earlier story, he says this. And so what is this about? I want to make big impact. I want things to be amazing. And Jesus is clearly saying, don't talk about it. Uh, eventually, it makes it into the Bible, right? Because it's in there. Um, but I want to run out. I, if I was one of those disciples, I'd be like, oh, did you see what Jesus did? He's amazing. You're going to want to know him. So I think this means something. I think this means something very clear. What Jesus is modeling here is that he's got a greater good intention right now. He's got something bigger to do that isn't so big that it's about the masses right now. It's about the people who are right in front of him that still need transformation. Because twice he says, but do you know who I am? He asks them, do you know who I am? Now, if he was moved into rock star fame right now, and he, you know, filled, he could fill stadiums with people, right? And he would just be this revolving door of healings, right? There would be people coming. Think about those people who recently just came and got fed, those fishes and loaves. I can imagine each and every one coming with, like, I, you know, I got this, like, achy back thing, or I've got, you know, I've got this mole on my toe. I'm sure every one of them would say, I have a little miracle I need you to do. Um, you know, I think about what it's like to be in midlife right now. I have this like achy neck thing going on and I'm like, uh, what did I do? You know, not the motorcycle accident or the trampoline flipping. I think I probably slept wrong, you know, and it's like, Jesus, can you heal me? Can you do this? And he's, you know, not about that right now. He is about something better. Jesus was fully God, but also fully man. And here he is clearly modeling his capacity for the time he has left, which is so good for us to look at that. He is setting boundaries to be such a cliche therapist right now. He is setting boundaries on his time and saying, if I'm to live into the greater good of transformation of these people who are right in front of me, my disciples, I can't be about the masses right now. I need to be about you. So don't go telling people yet what I've done, right? Because they'll start coming. So this is where we get to take, you know, look at Jesus, look at his life and say, where do I get to think about my capacity? 
Where do I think about what God has for me that's the greater good that I might have to say no to a lot of other things in order to focus deep into the places of discipleship that he has for me? Jesus already saw this. We already saw this in the Gospel of John. After the miracles, the crowd surged, and at one point Jesus said, you believe in me because you ate the bread. He wants so much more than a morsel of food that lasts for this moment, but nourishment that lasts a lifetime. And this happens with deep discipleship. What he urgently needs them to know in that moment is, who do you say that I am? First he says, who do they say that I am? They say, you know, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. To me, zone of proximal development here. They're not there yet. They're not all there yet. So I need to go deeper with you. We need to go a little deeper. They don't get it. They don't even, they saw all the miracles happen and still they don't get it. So when he's with the disciples, he's wanting to make sure they truly know because they will be the ones to carry this message and this healing on for generations to come. So here, you know, he begins from this point forward, as Scott said earlier, this is where things get smaller. From this time on, he's talking about his imminent death. So here he's wisely setting these limits of the time left by setting the boundaries and living within his capacity to focus on the greater good of discipleship. The miracles of the masses are behind us now, and his ministry is actually getting smaller and deeper until the very last moments of just 12 in a room having dinner with him. Where in your life are you being invited to consider your limits and your capacity in order to follow the greater good God has called you to? Who do you say that he is? Do you need to have more productivity, you know, more? This is what our culture talks about, right? This is what our culture sort of pushes us towards, this greater impact of our productivity. And I would say we can challenge that, right? Jesus can't risk leaving the people with only these miracles of healing if their hearts are not transformed. If Jesus was alive today, he would not be an influencer of those of us who know this term, probably younger generations. He would not be the big deal on Instagram or TikTok. No buzz. He was the God of the world that chose to pour into small situations, small groups of people. Jesus wants to do more than just provide food for a day. He wants total spirit-filled nourishment for the rest of eternity through transformed hearts that know who do you say I am and can answer truly with the Messiah. You know, I relate to this in a way and, you know, the desire to make a big impact. And as I said, it's like the idea, I I get to do therapy one-on-one with people that I love to do. And times I think, oh, if we could just fill stadiums with people to get this transformation, these healing processes out so everybody would know and everybody could love each other better. That's my heart. That's what I'm wired for. You know, and I think our world sort of tempts this idea of influencers. Um, Yeah, I think about recently I took a break from social media. I actually thought I had COVID and I thought there's no way I'm going to waste these hours just mindlessly in social media. So I just took it off uh, and, and then for the next several months stayed off of social media until it was my daughter's 18th birthday and I was like, I kind of need to post that, you know, it's a big deal. And um, so I ventured back in and I made the post about my daughter because really, honestly, my social media account is just like, I don't do scrapbooks and we don't have a lot of photo albums. So this is this history basically of my kids. So I made this post to my daughter and then I 
went looking a little bit, and I was kind of dabbling back in, like, oh, it's so good to see friends and this and that. And then not too long in there, I was thinking, oh, look what they're doing. That looks awesome. Oh, look what they're doing with their lives. Like, that seems like an awesome career. Who am I? What am I doing with my life? <laughs> I'm totally in this, like, spiraling of comparison. And I felt awful. And I was like, see? This is of the devil. And it's not. I mean, social media is fine <laughs> within context, though. But it was just so interesting to me. After so many months off, I was being the social psychologist in this moment. Like, I'm noticing how I'm feeling, and I don't feel good. And um, that idea of, like, we need to make big impact was hitting me of just like, oh, my gosh. So in that moment, I thought, you know, I even saw something on there that was frustrating. I'm like, oh, I could post and say something and change the world with a snarky comment. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I took the risk of reaching out to a friend, and I said, oh, I really got triggered. I got triggered by this thing, and I'm feeling so vulnerable, and I'm actually feeling really insecure, and actually I'm just probably completely sad that my daughter's growing up, but I'm channeling it this way, and sort of put it out there. And I waited, and I thought, oh, crap, what have I done? (laughs) I really took a risk, and uh, she didn't have a chance to get back to me right away, but by morning she had gotten back to me. And her response that said... I thought, clearly, she'd be like, yeah, just you're being irrational, just throw that out. She got back to me and said, I get it. I feel that way. I would feel that way, too. You're normal and all those good things. And I just felt my, suit, my spirit soothe. That same morning, I got a call from one of my um, former Young Life kids, now adults, that their eight-month baby had died. And we were just walking through the early stages of trauma and grief in that moment. And again, I was tempted to look at social media because I was so sad. And I thought, oh, I'll just look at a couple things that will, you know, be fun to look at. And at that very moment, a colleague who I've also mentored reached out, who's also dealt with some pain around infertility, just to say, hey, I'm just thinking of you, this gift you got me at Christmas, and I just wanted to say, I'm thinking of you. And she sent me a little picture of the gift. And I thought, oh, that made me feel so much better than if I had done this dive into the influencer world, right? And so to me, this just has such meaning for how we can look at where Jesus is modeling this idea of true connection. Now, again, social media is not bad, but true connection is so much better. And the greater good of the smaller connections and the real connections to the real people in your life is what creates transformation. And you said a couple times about discipleship, which is really a Christian word about deep relationship. Mm-hmm. Like what you're sharing here has the power to just reshape our relationships. I think it's a learning from COVID that the masses probably didn't need us quite as much as we thought. And the few really did need us more than we ever imagined. So it's eyes to see hearts. I'm sorry, eyes to see, ears to hear. But this final thing that we want to build out from this, this kind of lordship idea is hearts to follow. In verses 31 through 33, Um, Jesus began to teach them after Peter's already gotten it right. It wasn't a pass-fail, but it was just this loving, who do you say I am? He's gotten it right. But then Jesus taught them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the priests, and the teacher of the law, and they must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now again, Mark is written from the perspective and vantage point about Peter, so I find it really refreshing that there's this very transparent uh, miss on Peter's Um, on Peter's life. And if we zoom out on these three stories that we've been teaching today, all these stories have this tension of moving from blindness to sight. 
And this final one has this con- kind of this concern of how often we can see Christ through our own lenses. That the blind man needed two touches, like went from blurriness to actually see him. The disciples like, okay, the people say this, but what do you say? And now Peter's like, all right, I see you as Lord, but my humanity says I want you to have authority. And Jesus is like, that's not my ways. That's not it. And Peter sees it and then misses it. And then ultimately, at the end of the story, we know that Peter would be restored. Again, super hopeful when we miss it or we blow it in relationships or we miss what the Lordship of Christ will actually look like. This is a very invitational piece. But Jesus says this very convicting word in, in Mark 8, 33, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Human concerns. What are human concerns? We're human, so our concerns, our very nature, human concerns. But as we studied this week, and Silas had a lot to offer, every, uh, we have about 16 men and women that study the Bible every week uh, from around Bethany. We sit in a room and collaborate. It's, very, it's a very godly process. And Silas asked this question to, in the context of all these teachers studying the word on Monday, and Heather and I were there, like, what happens when our godly view becomes satanic? And it was really like, ooh, that's a big question, Silas. Like, he, he's deep. We love that. But the reality is, like, the human concerns, like, ah, this is where the church has missed it. This is what leads to white privilege. This is what leads to mansplaining in Women's History Month. This is what leads to Christian nationalism or our gospel of consumerism because we lay our concerns onto our view of Messiah. And so human concerns must be broken away from us. Where Jesus is saying to his friends, you have your concerns, but you don't yet know my concerns. And again, from here forward is going to be a pivot to the cross. So... It's just this really encouraging and challenging moment that discipleship should, by very nature, be breaking away things that are only human in our concerns and that feel like, honestly, right now for the church, a bit of a wake-up call. Like, are we more concerned with our humanity or of who God is and what that means for our hearts to follow? We know some things in our head, but is it transforming our hearts is it giving us a new vision for how we live, for how we do relationship, for how we're parenting those of us in the room that are parents, so how we go to work each day? We need, Lord, a new vision, a new touch. We need renewal. We need change. That's what Jesus said. And Heather already unpacked this a bit, but Jesus like, don't go back to the village. I want to send you home a different way. May we be on a journey, not going back to the way we've always done it, But being sent into new places with changed hearts, where we're transformed from just seeing some things from our own humanity, but moved to being people that have been transformed on this journey of the heart. And that's where we're kind of landing today. We're going to do something a bit different, but we want to be all of our churches, all of us as people. Okay, God, I have this tendency to look at you with my human concerns. Will you break that away from me in your lordship, in your king, kingship of my life? so that I get a new and deeper transformation of my heart. Mm -hmm. So I want to invite you into a deeper experience of transformation. Um, We, Scott and I, have been on a journey of just experiential faith practices that really kind of invite God in in unique ways. And uh, this was so clearly matching some of the studying I've been doing with um, 
Ruth Haley Barton's ministry called Transforming Center in Chicago. I go on quarterly retreats, and I'm midway through a two-and-a-half-year process there. And uh, one of the invitations recently has been to just experience faith in our entire body. And it's obviously a, a bigger topic, but it so relates to this deepening of the heart. How do we deepen our heart? So I want to invite you into something similar. Um, this quote of Im- speaks to embodied faith from what your body knows about God. And this is by Rob Mall. Now, the interesting thing is, you know the story better about Rob Mall. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell it? No, we don't have time. All right. So he really phenomenal person. I, I, I uh, encourage you to read about this, but this quote in particular is really profound, and it says that the, the work of prayer actually transforms our brains. So in 12 minutes of attentive and focused prayer every day for eight weeks, changes the brain significantly enough to be measured in a brain scan. Not only that, but it strengthens areas of the brain involved in social interaction, increasing our sense of compassion, and making us more sensitive to other people. It also reduces stress, bringing about measurable physical effect, lower blood pressure, and lower blood pressure. Prayer prayer in this deeper, more attentive way also strengthens the part of the brain that helps us override our emotional and irrational urges. Oh my gosh, are you kidding? Like, this is all therapy. This is everything we're trying to do in therapy. I'm like, just go home and pray. But like, do it in a real way is what he's saying. I just love, I love the intersection of faith and psychology. Prayer that seeks communion with God actually makes us more thoughtful and rational enhances our sense of peace and well-being and makes us more compassionate and responsive to the needs of other people. It's as though God created our bodies to live to their fullest when we love him and love our neighbors as ourselves. This is what we're made to do. This is what we're supposed to do. This is the transformation work of God. You don't need therapy. You need God. But you might need therapy too. And so I want to invite you into this experience that Maul did, and we don't have 12 minutes to do it, but we're going to take just a couple minutes, and I encourage you to take 12 minutes some other time this week to do it. But I invite you to just close your eyes, get comfortable in your chair, and we're going to call the band back up and maybe have a little background music going on, but just get comfy in your chair, get your feet where you feel the ground, sit where you feel comfy, take a big, deep breath so you can feel it deep in your belly. Put a hand over your heart, and with your eyes closed and kind of feeling comfy in your chair, you might feel the temperature of your body right now. There might be a cool breeze coming in from the door. You might feel a little warm. That's okay. Just get comfy. Notice how you feel. We want the full experience of God. Now envision Jesus in your mind right now. And let me ask you this question that he asks of the disciples. Where do you not have sight yet? Where are you maybe halfway healed and you want to invite Jesus into a full healing? Where are you maybe fully healed and you can praise God? Take this moment to say, you've done it, Lord. You've healed that situation, that person, that thing that ailed me last year or yesterday. Where are you maybe still feeling blind and you just full-on need that first touch to have sight? Hold that image in your mind. Ask God to enter into that. And now I want you to take another deep breath and ask the question of where do you hear, where do you struggle to hear the Lord? Where do you need ears to hear 
Who do you know Jesus to be? Is he the Messiah of your life? Are there competing influences? Are there other things that take that role of God in your heart and in your life right now? And you visually can see those things and you can ask Jesus to pull those aside and become the Messiah, become the center of my heart. Ask him to ask to hear him more fully. And take another deep breath. And where do you have a heart to follow? Where can you invite God more fully into your heart as you continue to hold your heart and you're aware of your body and you're in your head, you envision committing your heart more fully to God each and every day? Spend a moment right now feeling the beat of your heart, knowing that God loves you so dearly. And he has created you for communion with him to most fully live into the heart that he's created you for. And take one final deep breath and ask God to be in all of this as we say amen and we open our eyes and we join the room again. And I would just want to invite you to have an experience like this. Take time alone. Maybe you have loud, busy kids in the other room or it's in the middle of your lunch break and you have to close your office door. Just take a quick 10, 12, 15 minutes to close your eyes and be with God. And you can ask yourself these three questions again and envision him moving and working and doing the deep discipleship in your heart. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for the journey you have us on as individuals, as a community. I thank you that you never tire of healing us, that you'll come to us once more, once more, once more. You want to move us from places of blindness or deafness to to transformation. God, would you allow this teaching day to spill into our relationships, into our car rides home, and into tomorrow at work. And we want to move, God, from just thinking about you to actually experiencing you in wholeheartedness. So, Lord, thank you for this time, this, this moment. We love you. Thank you for your love of us. And all God's people said, amen.